you know, I heard and understood the message, and if, you know, if you were a child, say, I understood in an age-appropriate way, you know, I got the, the main concept of it, and I just, I responded positively. I said, okay, I, I welcomed it. I, I accepted Christ as my Savior, or I, you know, I prayed a prayer thanking God for sending Jesus and for Jesus coming into my, inviting him into my heart, or whatever it was, you know, I, I, I prayed a prayer, I welcomed it, I, or maybe other content, I went forward, or others say, well, I went forward, and I expressed my faith in Christ, and I was baptized, but, but you think, but demonstration of God's spirit and power? That's strong language. I mean, when I came to Christ, it wasn't like the Apostle Paul and the Damascus Road, you know, there wasn't it, a, a voice. Uh, I didn't hear Jesus speaking audibly. I wasn't struck blind by a vision. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't even like the 3,000 or so at Pentecost, you know, the, after Peter's sermon. Well, I mean, their conversion, you had 3,000 conversion stories there, Acts chapter 2, where they would, you know, their whole conversion story would involve tongues of fire resting on the apostles and people speaking in languages they'd never known. And, and it wasn't even like the many you read of in the Gospels who believed because of the miracles they had seen. John 2, 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, for those people, their faith in Christ is clearly linked to a demonstration of God's spirit and power, right? They saw the signs he was doing and they believed. John 7, and yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, you know, they're saying, we're looking for Messiah to come. I mean, if, if this man is not the Messiah, what do we expect the Messiah to do? Is, is, when the Messiah comes, he's going to do more than Jesus is doing. He's, he's, you know, he's giving sight to the blind. He's making the deaf able to hear. He's curing lepers. He's cleansing lepers. He's, he's re raising the dead. He's raising the dead. I mean, this, this has to be Messiah. And so it says they believed. And so with them, the many who believed, their faith, their hearing, is clearly um, attended by demonstrations of God's spirit and power. And by the way, I'm speaking of demonstrations of God's spirit and power. I believe it's not two things, it's one thing. It's like when you say it's nice and dry in here. It's not two things, it's one thing. A demonstration of God's spirit and power. And it's even with the disciples it was like that. After witnessing Jesus' miracle of making water into wine, John chapter 2, wedding feast at Cana, here's what John 2.11 says. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So clearly, their faith in Jesus is, was prompted by a demonstration of divine power. And so when you think about your coming to faith in Christ, 
then you consider the question did the gospel come to you in a demonstration of God's spirit and power you might feel like you have to say well well not not so much anyway uh, there weren't miracles or healings or voices out of a cloud or anything like that not so much and most of us apparently weren't so blessed with such demonstrations of God's power that prompted our faith and it seems like the good old days when that was just the way it happened extended even to those Christians who never saw Jesus in the flesh never heard him speak you know they were, they were too young to have lived when when Jesus conducted his earthly ministry but they did come to faith in the apostolic age and it seems like it was like that for them too. First Corinthians, here's the passage today. First Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now I have to tell you, you can take it down. I have to tell you that for a long time, I was a little intimidated by a, this passage. Uh, is a little bit of a problem passage for me. And you know how it is. There's a Bible passage, you know, that's inconvenient to your Christian belief and practice. And I don't care who you are. If you actually read and study the Bible, you're going to experience that. You're going to be reading the Bible, and, and you're going to read come across something, and you're going to think, wow, that's not terribly helpful to my theology. <laughs> that's not terribly helpful to how I see things. And, you know, I wish that one would read a little differently. I, you know, it would be nice if it would said something a little different. Well, here's how this little paragraph of Scripture seemed inconvenient for me. It seemed that Paul is saying something on the order of this. Remember, you Corinthian believers, that I didn't come to you as like a orator, a spellbinding orator. I didn't come to you with smooth words and a slick style. I... I, I didn't have a disarming and charming foreign accent, you know, that just make it, me easy to listen to. I didn't try to impress you with my presentation or my education. And I, I didn't come to you with some sort of time-tested and proven formula for getting people to believe, like, you know, starting out with a little joker story to show you I'm just a regular person like you. I'm someone you would like to be friends with and and then go on to have three uh, alliterated points, you know, bonus if they rhyme, and then close with some kind of dramatic moving story that's to kind of designed to get you out of the pew and down the aisle. It was nothing like that. But what was there, Paul appeared to be saying here? What was there was demonstrations of the Spirit and power. We know a Corinth. If you've read First Corinthians at all, you know you kind of you know know something of the things about the church. 
But say, no, there wasn't all that stuff, but there were, there were healings, there were miracles, there's people speaking in tongues and interpretation of those tongues, there's words of knowledge and the secrets of men's hearts being revealed and there were prophecies and the wow factor, the wow factor was just overwhelming. Not the wow in me, Paul says, but the wow in what God is doing among you and it was just, a, so of course people, of course you believe. Why wouldn't you believe with such demonstrations of God's spirit and power? And that's why Paul says, I really didn't, I didn't rely on that other stuff. You know, I didn't rely on that other fluff. The inconvenience for me of that reading of these verses is the fact that what I just described to you is exactly how some Christian leaders and ministries presented themselves and the basis for faith and the proof of faith. Man, you come here, you come to worship here, and you're going to see some impressive God stuff. You're going to see the power of God's Spirit, I mean, what, however, whatever else details they put to that, you're going to see people slain in the spirit. We're going to lay them down on the platform like cordwood. You know, we're, we're going to, you're going to see uh, legs, withered legs stretched out to be the same size as the other one, the healthy one. And you're going to be, there's going to be people speaking in tongues. There's going to be interpretation of tongues. You're going to, people are going to be getting happy and they're going to be rolling in the aisles. And you're going to see, you're going to see, God's spirit move and you're going to know that God is among us and he's real and you're going to believe and in doing it that way we're going to be doing it just like the early church did demonstrations of God's spirit and power meanwhile the part of the Christian world I was involved in you know our services our worship services were not like that at all. In fact, we were very, very suspicious about all that other stuff going on in other parts of town, other places. In, in some cases, we strongly suspected outright fraud, fakery, unprincipled manipulation, and in some of those cases, we were proven right, by the way. But this passage, and a few others like it, stung. Because we positively valued lofty speech. Plausible words of wisdom. We were working at it. We were working at becoming more persuasive, more impressive in our speech. We, we graded preachers on, on their impressiveness, their ability to give a persuasive sermon, even if unconsciously. I got to hear J. Vernon McGee preach a sermon in church one time. Who knows, J., who knows the name J. Vernon McGee? All right, yeah, I went. Why did I go? I went because J. Vernon McGee was preaching. It's the only time I've ever been to that particular church. I went because J. Vernon McGee was preaching, and a few years earlier, he had been kind of for a time, at least a summer, maybe longer, 
he was he was my spiritual breakfast cook you know he he fed me every work day he his uh through the bible came on at seven o'clock in the morning it ended at seven thirty, and that was my drive time i was working on a construction job that started at seven thirty in the morning and you know i listened to it that was my drive time i listened to it every day i'd pull up to the job site sit in the car until j vernon mcgee said may god richly bless you my beloved then i'd get out of the car the people i the guys i worked with the older guys i worked with said i mean this was a long time ago they wouldn't you know they'd be really really old now but they were old <laughs> they were younger than i was now but they were older than me and then they they kind of marveled and say Boy, he's careful. He's not going to give us one extra minute. He gets out of the car, 7.30 on the dot. He gets out of the car. So, yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to go and see and hear J. Vernon McGee preach in person. But I didn't go expecting a miracle like Oral Roberts said I should. If I went to hear Oral Roberts speak. I expected to see and hear J. Vernon McGee preach the word, and he did, and I was satisfied. One of the perks of going to Dallas Seminary was getting to see and hear these theological luminaries that would be speaking in chapel, and some of whom were teachers there. You get, you're right there, and you get to see it. And there's a wow factor there, too. But would you say that was a demonstration of God's spirit and power? Or was that the, what Paul is saying? That's not what we're about. Eloquence or persuasive words of wisdom. Last week I, I mentioned some you know kind of notable church signs. You know, I was talking about signs on churches last week. Well, I don't know if it's still there or not, but for years and years there was a little church on Highway 70 between Kingston and Rockwood that had the name of the church. I don't remember. But right there on the sign, painted right on the sign, it said, Miracles Every Service. Miracles Every Service. You know, I saw that. I thought, man, that's some pressure. Wow. <laughs> but my discomfort with something like second first uh, corinthians 2 1 through 5 is that that church that expected and promised to deliver miracles every service could kind of point at a passage like this and say that's how we that's our methodology too that's how we operate too we de we depend on demonstrations of god's spirit and Power and you know you couldn't help but escape the conclusion you know you and your church not 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 so much you're kind of more about impressive words of wisdom and eloquent preacher it's kind of moving rhetoric but nobody at your place expects something to actually happen nobody expects God to actually show up and do something I've come to believe that my discomfort with the passage for so many years was born of a misunderstanding of it 
that the demonstrations of divine power that Paul is speaking of right here are not spirit-empowered, spirit-generated miracles that were seen, signs that prompted people to believe. That that's not what he's talking about. Before I go on, I want to say to you, and some uh, some of this language is going to be familiar to some of you, and some of you are, it will not. But I, I would I am not embarking on a defense of cessationism. And cessationism is the belief that the Holy Spirit stopped giving certain spiritual gifts at a certain point in history during the apostolic age. And I say certain gifts because which ones? Which ones? Not all of them. Cessationists don't typically don't believe that all of them cease, but some of them. Which ones? The ones that make us nervous. The ones that have been claimed by frauds and fakes or just self-deluded manipulators, mostly revelatory gifts like prophecy or speaking in tongues and also other kinds of things like healing. Uh, cessationists see these kinds of gifts as, as startup gifts or foundational gifts. Uh, the founding of the church until that were in place that were useful um, as to authenticate the teaching and preaching of the apostles until that time uh, when the New Testament was completed and the teaching could be validated, authenticated by the scripture itself. Uh, cessationism provides a theological case for saying that any, any claim of a current day revelation or a prophecy or experience that one might be described as speaking in tongues or, or a tongues or tongue or a gift of healing or any of those, any of those on the contraband are automatically spurious because God's just not doing those kinds of things anymore. I was led to Christ by cessationists. I was discipled by cessationists. But my cessationism has ceased I came to the point where I had to admit at least to myself that the biblical case for cessationism had some real weaknesses it tended to be greatly strained and overstated uh, I, I very early I found the, the the idea that the arrival of the perfect I'm going to refer to something we haven't looked at yet but we'll get to first Corinthians 13 the idea that the perfect in 1 Corinthians 13 was the completion of the New Testament, uh, as cessationists, at least at the time, allege, made no sense in the context of the passage itself. That's all I'll say about it for now. But that one of the main passages, it, it the, the interpretation didn't work. Plus, I found that although our section of the Christian world was was just we were just crazy about the end times we wanted to place ourselves in the end of the end times we were looking for clues all the time looking for fulfilled prophecy in the day in the news in the newspaper on top we were looking for and we were finding fulfilled prophecy all the time that placed us in the end times somehow we failed to really incorporate joel's prophecy joel's prophecy that quoted in the new testament 
in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy plus part of it of my cessationism ceasing Part of it was that I came to know some people who had had some of these experiences and I knew them not to be flakes, frauds, nuts, but sound and sincere believers. I've gotten myself in a little trouble before by saying that I repented of my cessation, use that word repented of my cessationism, but I, and by that I meant and mean that part of the appeal of cessationism for me, not speaking for others, just for me, was that so many professing believers who were not cessationists and doing, you know, they were, you know, and, and so many of them, uh, well, how should I say this? It is a technical theological term. They gave me the willies. <laughs> they uh, made me wince. I found some of them embarrassing. Some of their shenanigans, especially the out-and-out -out charlatans and fakes and frauds, were not helpful in witnessing to unbelievers. <laughs> And therefore, my cessationism, I came to see for myself, not for necessarily for anyone else, did not flow from what I was convinced that the scriptures really taught, but it was a conviction of convenience that not only assuaged and validated my lack of experience, but also allowed me to d dismiss out of hand the people who made me nervous <laughs> or I found embarrassing or fraudulent and some of those people and no no, no I won't I'll take the not the fraud I don't want to take that out of it but some of those people I had later come to see as uh, appreciated sincere brothers in Christ so for me there was an element of repentance to it it wasn't just coming to a different view about something in scripture I don't mean you know sometimes you see things one way for a while and you change a little bit and it's not that you would not in a repentance there's no moral but for me there was a little bit of a moral uh, moral implication but that's enough to say for now uh, but if you know first Corinthians at all you know we're gonna have to deal with these things in greater detail <laughs> there's some chapters coming up but with that aside, you know, that little rabbit trail aside, here's what I want to say to you today and even convince you of, that the demonstrations of divine power that Paul is speaking about in this passage, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, are not spirit-empowered miracles, uh, signs and wonders that prompted people to believe what and then what are they 
What's the demonstration of God's spirit and power? It's the very fact that people did believe and that their hearts were changed and their spiritual lives were quickened. Three lines of evidence for that. The first is that there's, this has been the entire emphasis of the letter so far. Paul says, and this is where we've been the last couple of weeks, Paul says he was called as an apostle, and in the very same way, you all were called into the church. You were called as believers. In other words, they were effectually called, effectively called. They, God called and they responded. Not fall on deaf ears. Why is that? Because God changed their ears. He gave them ears to hear. They have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's one, too. It's passive voice. So you have been sanctified. God changed you. God did to you. He set you apart he, to be holy. The, the process of sanctification has begun. You, you didn't do that on your own. God had to do that by his power. God changed them so that they, this is one, too, they call upon the name of the Lord. Paul says that's what... Believers everywhere do that. That's what God does. He changes you so that your heart wants to call on, call out to Him. They, they now confirm the testimony about Jesus. Jesus is not a historical figure to them. That you know, just someone from history or a legend or something like that. He's a person. They look forward to the return of Christ now, just like all Christians do. That's 1, 7, and 8. God has given them spiritual gifts, and not just the fancy ones, not just the, not just the ones that people dispute about now. God gave you spiritual gifts. They didn't come from yourself. They've been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ himself. All, this is in, all of this is in the first chapter. These things do not happen in a person Apart from God's power, these are not things an eloquent speaker can whip up in an audience. The most eloquent speaker in the world cannot persuade the dead to come to life. Cannot persuade the blind to see. So if you were once blind to the truth of the gospel, but now you see it, if you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive to God, the only way that could have ever happened is by an exertion of God's spirit and power in your case, in your person, in your soul. If you've come to... If your relationship with sin is now complicated, <laughs> that you loathe the sin you once loved without conflict at all, that could have only happened by God's transforming power. You've been sanctified. That's one first line of evidence. The second reason why this has to be true, if the demonstrations of the Spirit and power are basically signs, you know, basically, you know, miraculous evidence that prompts belief, it, it would fundamentally contradict what Paul had just said a few verses earlier, verses 21 through 24, he says, For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
the ideas that Paul's in Paul's presentation of the gospel, oh, it's a sign, then we'll believe. They didn't get it, and so they were unconvinced. The Greeks were sought to be impressed by eloquence and you know rhetoric and all of that. They didn't get it, and they weren't moved. But the simple presentation of the gospel through it, God did work in some people, both Jews and Greeks, and they, what did they experience? They were powerfully changed by God. 118. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Divine power. These, uh, so far, you know, we've spent a few weeks in 1 Corinthians. It's all about God's power. But what's the power? The power is revealed in the conversion of people. People are changed. Thirdly, there's parallel language of Paul's in 1 Thessalonians, which makes the same point, puts it a little bit different way, and maybe it'll be a little clearer. And I've asked Wayne, did you get, we get 1 Thessalonians 1, 2? Yes. Just read this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Look at this one. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Same language, right? In full conviction. The, the conviction is the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. The conviction. You became convinced. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who Jesus, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What was the power that attended Paul's preaching of the gospel to uh, the Thessalonians? It was, their, it was the, their spirit wrought conversion. Their, uh, their conviction of the truth that they were hearing. It's the way that they latched on to wanting to and beginning to walk the walk. Even so as to be an example to others far away. It was the way they received the word with joy. A joy that Paul says came from the Holy Spirit even though it meant affliction for them. They believe something that gives them joy, even though it means trouble. It was how they turned from dead idols to the living God. It's how they placed their hope in the return of Jesus, who, who was raised from the dead and who's coming back, who will deliver us from the wrath to come. And he sums it up in 2.13. Little, uh, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, 
but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. And I'd say, you could say, at work in powerful demonstrations of the Spirit and power. So answer the question to your own satisfaction. Honest to yourself, honest to God. Did the gospel come to you, did it come to me, in a demonstration of God's Spirit and power? Like it did for the Corinthians. It isn't a question about whether there were a lot of, where there's a lot of commotion and bells and whistles or, you know, a lot of things going on when you heard and understood the gospel. It isn't a question about whether you saw miracles or signs that convinced you, even if that's how it happened with you. It's a question about whether the gospel changed you. More precisely, whether God used the preaching of the gospel or the sharing of the gospel to quicken your heart, to quicken your spirit toward God. Did and does your heart thrill at the good news that there is perfect forgiveness in Jesus through faith in him? Does that resonate with you? It's a question about your attitude towards sin in your life. Has it changed? Did your basic posture towards sin change in your hearing of the gospel? These are just other ways of saying, did God sanctify you? Do you have an inner sense of conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches? What the Bible commands, God commands. What the Bible promises, God promises. In other words, do you hear God's voice in it? Or does it just simply bore you? Does your heart now move you to call upon the name of the Lord? That's the way it works with all Christians. Is that how it is with you? Are you in relationship with him, with the Lord? Or is he just still on an impersonal level of historical or maybe even a legendary figure? Do you long to know him better? Do you desire to please him more? Or are you still serving the idol of self, which is, I'm convinced, is the chief idolatry of our age? Is there a joy in knowing and serving Jesus, even when knowing and serving Jesus brings you trouble you wouldn't have if you didn't know and serve Jesus? Do you hope in his return? If so, these things did not happen to you by your own doing, and they sure, the faith that you have, you know, that experience you have as a Christian now, on the level of your affections they, and your practice, they sure aren't resting on the words of an eloquent speaker you heard many, many, many years ago. And they sure aren't resting on the explanation your mom gave you when you so long ago you can't even remember you were a child in a conversation you can't even remember. These things have happened and continue to be happening in you because God's power has been and is at work in you and that's what this passage is saying. Now, 
if these things have not happened to you, and they're not, they haven't happened to you and they're not happening in you now, then the answer to that first question is, it really is no. The gospel did not come to me. If that's the case, if this is not you, the gospel did not come to you in a demonstration of God's spirit and power. You, you've probably heard the gospel dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, but if, if it's not, if these things aren't true of you, it's, it's like the seed that fell on the road. You just never did penetrate, and nothing happened. No power. Heaven's appeals to you, and the gospel is an appeal to you, have bounced off you like your heart was made of brass. But though your heart has been like brass to God's appeals, heaven will not be like brass to you, to your appeals, to save you. Because here's the promise of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Embrace the gospel and God will save you in a demonstration of his spirit and power in you. Put yourself in the biblical equations. This time, this time, put yourself in the biblical equations. For God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son so that if I believe in him, I will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn me but in order that I might be saved through him. Receive it this time. And God will do in you things that only could be done by His Spirit and power. Only He can work in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Believe and be saved. Obey the gospel. To believe is to receive. And there will be in your life it really will be a demonstration of God's spirit and power. He promises it. He does it in the case of every single person who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. Lord, thank you for every person here today who's been changed in the deepest part of their being by the hearing of the gospel, whose affections have been changed, whose hopes have been altered, who are no longer what they once were, or in the case of those who are blessed to have been converted at a very young age, they're not what they would have been apart from you, not like their peers who do not know Christ. And we thank you because we know that none of it has been of our own doing or any other man's, but that we've been sanctified and are being sanctified by your spirit and your power. Continue your work in us. For your glory and our blessing, overcome the remaining pockets of rebellion and idolatry where the flesh still wages this battle on the side of sin. Help us to be yielded to your work in us and exert your divine power just as you did in us, in those who have 
may have heard the gospel many times, but not with ears to hear, not with hearts to receive, and not with a demonstration of your spirit and power. Let us see and let them experience the miracle of your transforming grace in bringing sinners to repentance and to forgiveness and to reconciliation and to joy and peace and everlasting life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.